time you dress so fine Through the bumps of dime in your prime Then you People call, say beware doll You're bound to fall, you thought they were all Welcome to another episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Soboleski. And in this episode, we're going to talk about kidney stones, which are surprisingly becoming more and more common in pediatric patients. In fact, I've seen them in kids as young as seven and eight years of age. So ultimately, we'll go over presentation, diagnosis, imaging, and management. But let's start out with taking a history. And unsurprisingly, perhaps, family history is suggestive of kidney stones in about one out of seven children. Metabolic disorders like intestinal malabsorption is an additional risk factor. You know, those kids with metabolic disorders and delayed development, think about a stone when the kid is just excessively crying, fussy, or has undifferentiated abdominal pain. Recurrent UTI, especially those caused by Proteus and Klebsiella, as well as urogenital tract structural abnormalities are also risk factors for stones that you should be aware of. In general, a personal history of urolithiasis, a history of nausea and vomiting, the presence of flank pain on examination, and greater than two red blood cells per high power field on urine microscopy are positively associated with urolithiasis. This is a paper by Persaud. Now on the exam, Obviously, you need to do a thorough one, especially the abdomen and the GU area. Don't just assume that hematuria is actually hematuria because the blood can be coming from somewhere else. So do an external genitourinary exam and obviously get a chaperone for a member of the opposite sex. If the patient's BP is elevated, well, that could be due to pain or renal injury. It's probably due to the former more than the latter, but don't assume. Febrile patients with stones have an obviously higher level of concern for the UTI. And in general, patients with obstructing ureteral stones look very uncomfortable. They cannot find a position that makes them feel okay, so they will squirm around the bed. They're often pale, diaphoretic, and tachycardic as well. So less than one-fifth of pediatric patients are actually symptomatic upon presentation, but that's still a lot. Often younger children, especially under five, will have their stones seen on imaging studies obtained for other indications. So not all stones are obstructing stones. That's kind of obvious, but it's important to remember. In general, as you'd expect, pain is the most common symptom you'll see. Up to 75% of patients that come to the ED with kidney stones have pain. I think it's actually kind of higher than that. Um, This includes both flank and abdominal pain. Classic renal colic is severe and intermittent. It's kind of like a severe Charlie horse inside the abdomen. That can help a patient conceptualize things. Other patients just have a persistent dull ache. Again, kids under five or six can't describe pain, nausea, and other symptoms as accurately, so they may have a very nonspecific presentation with poorly localized abdominal pain. Pain is more likely to be seen on presentation in adolescents rather than school-age children. This is a study by Milliner. And ureteral stones are more painful as the spasm is intense. Um, Older children and adolescents have these two-thirds of the time, so this probably accounts for the fact that you're going to have more of them presenting with pain, leading to the diagnosis of ureteral stones. Gross hematuria is less frequent than microscopic hematuria, and it's seen in one-third to one-half of patients. Note that some voids can be bloody, others not for the individual patient. The absence of gross hematuria 
can have a 100% negative predictive value, but this was a study that was done in only 24 patients, so your mileage may vary on that one. Only 1 in 10 patients will have discomfort with urination. Urgency, hesitancy, and other symptoms suggestive of UTI are also seen. Patients with urinary hesitancy or urgency may have a stone in the bladder or hanging out in the urethra. In some cases, the pain can actually radiate to the tip of the penis. The final symptom that we encounter often is nausea and vomiting. And generally, this is felt to be secondary to pain, but infected stones can cause emesis as well because the patient essentially has a UTI and or pilo. About 1 in 10 children that present to the emergency department with a kidney stone will have vomiting. Though in my practice, I've seen kids with nausea and vomiting a little more often than 1 in 10. Okay, so if kidney stone is on your differential, then I suspect that all of you are going to order a urinalysis. In fact, it's kind of mandated when you're doing the workup. So let's first talk about hematuria. Again, as I mentioned before, some patients have hematuria, some don't. It occurs on some voids, and others it doesn't. Some patients will present with gross hematuria, a red toilet bowl. Others, it will only be seen on urine microscopy. The moral of the story when it comes to kidney stones is that you should not use a negative urinalysis to exclude the possibility of a kidney stone. Though an adult, a study from Luch et al. described the test characteristics of seeing blood on the UA, this was done in patients with CT-confirmed stones. So the sensitivity of blood in the urine was 84%, the specificity 48%, positive predictive value 72%, and negative predictive value 65%. Microhematuria was not seen in, in almost three out of five patients in a similar adult study from Zalfus. They noted the presence or absence of blood in urinalysis cannot be used to reliably determine which patients actually have ureteral stones, sort of like I said before. There are some pediatric studies, um, but again, they're small in number. There was one from Persaud who examined 95 patients with stones, and 15% had negative UA for hematuria. So again, not having a hematuria does not exclude the possibility of a stone. Now, urine crystals can be seen on the microscopic UA, but don't rely on them for diagnosis. And know that the type of crystal may help urology in the future, but it's not really useful in the binary yes-no question if this patient has a stone. Any febrile patient with a stone should be suspected of having a concurrent UTI or pylo. That's where pyuria and the urine culture come into play. These so-called infected stones um, will have white blood cells in the urine and positive nitrites, and this has been a level of evidence grade A in the European Association of Urology Guideline. The other lab that you're going to want to look at, especially in patients that are dehydrated, sick, or hypertensive, is a serum creatinine. If you're going to be giving fluids and IV pain medicines, which is generally a good idea, you probably should obtain a measurement of the serum creatinine. This is often part of a renal panel, basic metabolic panel, Chem 7, Sunday special, whatever you call it at your institution. You can see a bump in creatinine and acute kidney injury, either from dehydration, renal injury, or both. I've rarely seen elevated creatinines in children, but they have occurred most often in patients who are moderately to severely dehydrated. Let's move on to talk about imaging. So who should get it when you're making a diagnosis of a kidney stone? Well, in short, in any patient with whom the diagnosis is uncertain and in any patient in whom you're diagnosing a stone for the first time. The imaging studies available to most of us include traditional plain x-rays, 
a non-contrast CT, or an ultrasound. I'll get into which one is preferred and what the evidence shows in a minute. But let's talk about the characteristics of these individual studies. So plain radiographs can actually show a stone, calcium, struvite, and cysteine stones are radioopaque. Other types of stones, well, they're radiolucent. Small stones can lie atop bony structures in the image plane like the pelvis, and therefore the sensitivity of seeing stones on an x-ray does not exceed 60%. All right, let's get this one out of the way. The non-contrast CT scan is the most sensitive test to detect stones, even those that are not able to be seen by ultrasound. You know, these are stones less than 1 to 2 millimeters. CT is fast, takes 2 minutes. Usually it won't require sedation for the majority of patients presenting with a stone, but the risk of radiation is there. So that's why ultrasound has become very popular and most often used as the first imaging test in the diagnosis of kidney stones in pediatric patients and adolescents. The ultrasound should include the kidney, filled bladder, which you're going to have to use IV fluids, oral fluids, or a Foley, and adjoining portions of the ureter. In general, ultrasounds are operator-dependent and aren't as good as CT at detecting ureteral stones or those under 5 millimeters. The sensitivity, according to Passerati, was 76%, and the specificity was 100%, which makes sense since if you see the stone, then you've made your diagnosis naturally. In their analysis, the mean size of missed stones, you know, where they needed to get a CT scan to make the diagnosis, was a little larger than 2 millimeters. So in general, ultrasound missed stones in up to 40% of pediatric patients. And yes, though the considerations are different due to size of patients and imaging characteristics, there have been more ultrasound studies been performed in adults. For instance, in a comparative effectiveness study from Smith-Binman in the New England Journal, the argument was made that ultrasound could be used in two-thirds of patients with suspected stone. Essentially, they argue that rote ordering of a non-contrast CT as the first imaging test isn't necessary 66.67% of the time. Another question that comes up about imaging is whether or not identification of hydronephrosis is a proxy to the unseen ureteral stone. So if your pretest probability for stone is high, well then the answer to that question is yes. Note that hydronephrosis doesn't automatically mean that you should admit a patient. Yes, the stone obstructs a little bit, but we'll talk about passage rate as we move forward. So ultimately, which test is better? Well, If you get down to the nitty-gritty, then CT is better according to the test characteristics. However, ultrasound is safer, and it's the best first imaging choice in pediatric patients. And ultimately, you need to ask yourself the following questions. You know, are you looking to identify the stone, or are you trying to find out which patients are higher risk for urology interventions? Interestingly, up to 1 out of 12 patients that end up with some sort of intervention from a urologist have a complication. You know, sepsis, um, Stone Street, which is Steinstrasse. I don't speak German. I took Spanish in high school. A stricture, ureteral injury, and UTI. So these are all big deals, and you want to try to let a stone pass before going invasive if possible. You know, if the patient's had stones before and you suspect that this subsequent presentation in front of you is also a stone, then you actually don't necessarily even need to image in the first place. Save money. Focus on pain management. After all, you know, the rate of spontaneous stone passage, 
You know, this includes patients that get IV fluids and meds in the ED. For those less than five millimeters, and this is most stones in kids, is near 100%. So in summary, I get ultrasound first. If it's negative and you still need to identify the source of the pain or the stone, then get a non-contrast CT scan. And finally, let's talk about treatment. And again, as I mentioned just a few seconds ago, the spontaneous passage rate in some studies gets close to 100%. The best estimate we can give is about 90% overall, and a lot of this is still based on adult data. Stones less than 5 millimeters, as noted, are highly likely to pass. 10 millimeter stones, less so, and that is a giant boulder. One adults-only study showed that the rate of urologic intervention increased with stone size. So up to 50% of stones 4 to 6 millimeters in size needed an intervention. This was a study from Miller. The size and location of the stone and its relation to the likelihood of passage is only truly estimated well in adults and if patients have uncontrolled symptoms, hydronephrosis and signs of an obstructing stone with UTI. So in general, I think you can tell families that 90% of patients will pass their stones regardless of size. Obviously, more evidence is forthcoming. So what's the best pain medicine? Well, in general, both NSAIDs and opiates are appropriate. Comparison of the two has not been done to a satisfactory degree in pediatric patients. If renal function is normal, you know, or you don't think that there's any problems to begin with, then you can start with NSAIDs. You know, IV or IM Toradol is a great first choice. It can promote ureteral dilatation and reduce inflammation. The dose is 0.5 mg per kg, 30 milligrams max, though some will go lower or higher. Opiates like morphine are also a good choice. I'd recommend using them after Toradol or in patients with renal insufficiency. Morphine at 0.1 mg per kg IV, max of 5 milligrams is a dose. It lasts longer than fentanyl. It's a better choice in the ED since you're going to be rehydrating these patients as well. Some adult studies have indicated that the combo of the two, you know, NSAID plus opiate, is better still. But perhaps if the patient isn't in that much pain, do a stepwise approach and go with Toradol first. In patients who can be discharged home, regular NSAIDs, ibuprofen or naproxen are first line. Opiates, like your Percocets, Vicodins, that's for breakthrough pain. If pain's significant enough to require multiple doses of IV pain meds, then these patients probably need to be admitted, obviously. So are antiemetics helpful? Well, if the patient's nauseous and vomiting, yes. I would recommend Ondansetron, IV or PO, you know, either the ODT or suspension. What about IV hydration? So if the patient is euvolemic and not dehydrated, you don't need to reflexively give that 20 ml per kilo normal saline bolus. You can start IV hydration with D5 normal saline at one and a half to two times maintenance rate in the emergency department. Or if the patient's dry from vomiting, we'll go ahead and bolus them up. All right, what about alpha blockers? You see these used in adults. Tamsulosin, doxazosin, try spelling those. Um, these are alpha blockers that may lead to increased passage rate in children. There's not a lot of studies, but let me go over the few that there are. Agdogdu, you know, looked at 39 children with distal ureteral stones less than 10 millimeters and randomized to either doxazosin or ibuprofen. You know, so comparing across classes here. They found no significant difference in the overall stone passage rate or mean time for passage. Erdahan noted that in their trial, 45 children, there was increased passage rates for patients getting both doxazosin and ibuprofen 
versus those that got ibuprofen alone. A prospective-controlled trial of 61 children with distal ureteral stones less than 12 millimeters conducted by Muklis noted that kids that got tamsulosin, the alpha blocker, and pain meds versus those that only got pain meds had a higher stone-free rate after four weeks, 88% versus 64%, and decreased passage time, eight days versus 14 days. And Tassian looked at a retrospective review of 274 patients and noted a greater likelihood of stone passage overall in those that had received tamsulosin. The odds ratio was 3.3. So in general, discussion with urology is kind of assumed prior to starting these drugs. I don't really start them willy-nilly on my own. And any patient with a first-time stone or recurrent stone should be following up with a urologist, especially if they're younger. A sample regimen of an alpha blocker would be 0.4 milligrams of tamsulosin, a.k.a. Flomax, before bedtime each night. This is a good choice for even younger kids since it's a capsule and can be opened up and sprinkled on something yummy. If stone passage hasn't occurred in one to two weeks, then other interventions are needed. And this is on top of aggressive hydration, oral pain meds, antiemetics. These first-dose hypotension of the alpha blockers that's reported in adults mostly, it should be discussed with patients, but it's not a contraindication, and we don't know actually how often it occurs in pediatric patients. Antibiotics should be used in any patients with signs of UTI and urinalysis or febrile patients in whom the risk of an infected stone is high. Think of cephalosporins, Bactrim, or other agents. Febrile patients, ill-appearing patients with a stone in UTI generally should be admitted. Um, ultimately, talk to urology in these cases. And speaking of admission, well, if you need lots of IV pain meds, can't tolerate oral fluids, if urology is considering an immediate intervention, which is generally rare for giant stones greater than a centimeter, and if you have a UTI plus stone and ill-appearing. The final thing I'll talk about is something that doesn't occur in the ED but is important for you to understand because patients and parents will ask about it. So what's the best urologic intervention, you know, beyond medicines and fluids? So there's ESWL, which is external shockwave lithotripsy, percutaneous nephrostolithotomy, try saying that three times fast, and ureteroscopy are the most commonly cited techniques. These are not pursued unless the stone is obstructing and generally after one to two weeks of medical management. Now, if the stone has caused renal injury on imaging elevated creatinine, or if there's a UTI in urosepsis, then a urologist may want to do something interventionally much sooner. Stones that obstruct at the ureterovesical junction or the ureteropelvic junction may benefit from temporary stents as well. So lithotripsy is good for stones less than 1 to 2 centimeters, but this can require general anesthesia as children need to remain motionless. It is, though, generally the first line in kids. It should not be done if the stone is in the pelvis and the patient is a female. Stents can be better for stones greater than 2 centimeters, which is giant. Um, percutaneous approaches are comparable to lithotripsy, but there's very limited studies in children. Finally, ureteroscopy is generally used as the first choice for children that fail lithotripsy. Well, that's all I've got on kidney stones. You can check out more great educational content on PEMblog.com including a four-part series on kidney stones. Follow me on Twitter at PemTweets and leave me a review on iTunes. I'd really appreciate the feedback. Until next time, this is Brad Sobolewski for Pem Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast.